welcome to the Communicator Circle podcast. I'm your host, Tim Dutellis. And on today's episode, we have a conversation with author, storyteller, teacher, minister, well, I won't spoil all of the details, Matthew Dix is on the podcast today. Let's enjoy this conversation as we dive deeper into the craft of storytelling. Well, Matthew, welcome back home. I guess I should say you've been on the road. Oh, I have. Yes, I was I was in uh, San Francisco teaching storytelling to some school administrators. It was lovely. San Francisco, I remember going there. It was like sourdough bread down at the wharf. I wish I had had time for that. I had unfortunate travel experiences, so I was supposed to spend sort of a day in San Francisco, and instead I spent a day in the Detroit airport. So I didn't get to see much of San Francisco on this trip, but it was still lovely. Which uh, leads me to a question I wanted to ask you about irony. What does irony mean to you? Because you obviously have done a ton of writing, but what is irony when, it, when you think about that? Well, in terms of storytelling, you know, the type of storytelling that I do personally, I always think of irony as either the universe is winking at me or the universe has stuck something in my eye, depending on the results of the irony. Sometimes I like to think, oh, look, maybe someone is in charge when something ironic happens, although sometimes irony is unfortunate and you feel like the universe is against you. So I pay attention to it and acknowledge it, and then I move on. I was supposed to arrive at about 10 a.m., and instead I arrived at 3 a.m. sort of the next morning. So you know, I missed out on that. But because I was sitting in the Detroit airport for nine hours, I did get to witness a marriage proposal right in front of me, sort of, you know, six feet away from me. So I was actually talking to the administrators in San Francisco and talking about how that might be a story. And I said, well, you know, if we think about it, San Francisco is always going to be here unless the big one hits and they slide into the ocean. Like it's a city that will always be available to me. But a marriage proposal, this like truly beautiful moment between these two people who landed on separate planes, who hadn't seen each other in six months and came together right in front of me, that's a once in a lifetime, you have to be there moment. I don't know if it was really worth all of the time I spent on planes and in airports, but it might have been. That's the sort of relentless positivity that makes my wife crazy that I sort of try to (laughs) imbue in my life whenever possible. You actually mentioned about this finding what's your story about, and and you just kind of tapped into something there, you know, like what's the what? Is it that one-time event? Is it that this will never happen again? Well, in that case, yeah, for sure. You know, when I'm trying to find the what, it's often a matter of telling myself the story, sort of the uncrafted version of the story, and you know, by placing myself in that situation and by trying to see as much as I can in my mind's eye, I'm often able to find the thing that I might not see initially or the thing that I kind of know intrinsically, but, you know, haven't found the wisdom to speak out loud. It just happened to me with a couple other stories that I was sort of stuck on. They weren't stories in my mind. They were these interesting moments that were lingering in my mind that I couldn't sort of get out. And in both cases, I told myself the story. I said, well, I'll just tell myself what happened and see if there's anything actually there. And in both cases, I found these really wonderful things that I'm so excited about telling as soon as I can, because they're just the kinds of stories that I get 
thrilled to stand in front of people and, and talk about. In storytelling, it's commonly said it's a story about what does X want, right? This protagonist wants something. But in a lot of your storytelling, I notice it's very much more what does X become? Yeah, or what does X realize, right? One or the other. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between a wanting character versus a realization, awareness, becoming. Because that that emotion is a very deeper emotion than just, oh gosh, I overcame some conflict. Yeah, I think the wanting is a plot-driven storytelling element, you know, which is something I think about when I write my novels. What does my character want? I think in real life, if we sort of start looking for wants or, you know, overcoming obstacles and things like that, we look at our lives in terms of what we're doing. And, you know, we try to sort of turn our lives into uh, a novelization of, you know, what it really is. I think most of the stories that happen to us, most of the things worth speaking about, they actually happen in our heads. And I think if people are watching us experience these moments, they would not realize that something profound is happening to us. You know, that just the internal stirrings of our minds, that's, I think, where the best stories lie, because those are the stories that are most connective. If I tell a story about a want or having to overcome something, that's a lot harder for me to connect with an audience because it is less likely for them to have the same want or for them to want to overcome the same obstacle. But I think sort of those moments where we suddenly realize something or we think differently or we slightly change as a human being, those are things that I think people understand deeply. And that's why I think the stories that I tell resonate a little bit better because I'm speaking about things that other people can relate to, understand, or even if it's not their understanding, the nods I get when I perform, and like the whole audience will just nod at me. And I know the nod is either I feel the same thing you feel, or I know someone who has experienced the same type of thing you're talking about. And both of those are great. Is that the audience looking at you as kind of somebody they want to see win in that situation? Is there a sense that maybe people look at you and go, he's vulnerable, there's authenticity. What is it, the connection on a deeper level? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's winning, though, because, you know, I have a lot of stories where I am definitely not the winner. You know, I have stories where I say, you know, essentially, it did not work out, or I thought I was better than I was. And those stories, people nod at me all the time. You know, I think that is a much more universal feeling in people is that I'm not as good as I had hoped, or I am not as good as anyone thought I was. I'm an imposter. You know, those types of stories really connect with audiences because those are sentiments that we feel that are not often expressed by others out loud. So whenever I can find something that has happened to me that sort of isn't spoken about often and yet is a truth, sort of a universal truth, I'm really excited about those stories. I think people are just looking for others to speak about humanity in a way that is true and authentic. And and oftentimes I think the best storytellers are the ones who just say the stuff that other people are unwilling to say. It just seems so predictable these days, right? You Somebody starts a story and like you say, they'll, they'll know the ending kind of right in the beginning, which leaves no fun for the audience. It's true. Well, sometimes they just do it terribly by telling us what the story is. They'll say, this is the story about how I met the love of my life. And I often think, well, you just, you just told the story. That was, that was actually the story. 
I'm sure there's some interesting details along the way, but you've just ruined everything. You know, my goal is always in storytelling, I want the end of the story to so clearly connect back to the beginning of the story. And yet I don't want them to see that connection until the moment it happens. And then they think, oh, right. He was talking about that in the beginning. And now he's talking about it again at the end. When the two can connect in a surprising, unexpected, unpredictable way, that's sort of the best version of storytelling, I think, because then the audience puts it together for themselves and they get that amazing feeling where they suddenly understand it and they feel like they have put it all together in their own head. I can hear that in your storytelling. I, you know, obviously, I binge-watched your moth storytelling after reading your book, Story Worthy. Plus, you you actually narrated it to me in my head because I, I did the audible version <laughs> <laughs> Speak, speaking of the loves of your life, uh, your wife, you mentioned earlier about optimism, and that became a part of your, let's just say, your psyche or your belief system early on from a school teacher. Talk to me for a moment on the influence of optimism to you as a person. It's really at my core, I would say, a fundamental belief that I have. You know, I had a teacher very early on in life, just randomly, but importantly, say to me, a positive self-attitude is your key to success. And I, I heard that, and I don't know, it just felt right to me. And I think one of the things that happened in my life was there was a moment when I was facing uh, prison. I was arrested for a crime I did not commit, and I was homeless waiting for my trial. And, you know, during that time in my life, I discovered that the absolute worst thing that you can ever lose in life is hope. Once hope is gone, really everything else becomes meaningless. And I remember that there was a period of time, it might have been about a week, when I lost all hope. And I just thought, I'm never going to live in another house again. I'm probably going to be in prison. And this is it. I'm 21 and I've cooked, you know, I'm cooked. This is it for my life. And I managed to get out of that situation. I managed to find a little hope and I found a little help. But through that process of sort of getting back on my feet, I think I found a lot of optimism. The, the decision to look at things through a positive light as much as possible. The refusal to allow sort of a lot of the negative things in my life to be negative if I could somehow flip them, you know, flip the script and that has just grown over the years, you know, in a way that my wife has watched grow. You know, she's been with me now for, we've been together for 17 years. And I was a very optimistic and positive person 17 years ago. But today, she says, you know, it's it's sort of gotten a little ridiculous. I'm constantly looking for the, the bright side. I'm constantly, I'm constantly trying to turn everything that is in my life to something much more positive, like that Detroit airport incident. You know, I lose a whole day in San Francisco, I get to see a marriage proposal, you know, and there, I think there are some people who say, wouldn't a day in a city have been worth more than a nine minute marriage proposal? And maybe that's true. But why would I choose to think that way? When I can instead think the other way and be a happier person. So, you know, it might be aggressive, and it might be a little relentless, and it might be a little annoying. But I think it's the way to be. I think I'm just a very happy person because I'm constantly looking for these things. And talking about your kids, you had mentioned in your book about it's not the role of the parent to ever be mean 
to your child. You talked about an incident where you sat in the car, you were upset, right? Windows closed, and you may have you may have expressed something audibly in the vehicle, but nobody heard you, and the kids were out there somewhere. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not laughing at what happened. I'm laughing at the moment of, of being a dad, thinking. Sometimes you want to grab them by the neck and express, but you you have chosen a very interesting, I guess, premise, which is don't be mean to my kids. Is optimism at the core of that? Maybe, yeah. I, you know, I think we're truly at the core of it as an evil stepfather who was mean to me my child throughout my childhood. So, you know, sometimes I think the negative example is often the best example. You know, you watch someone do something and you think I'm never going to do that. I think what it is, is I understand what it feels like to be treated in that way. If you grow up and your parents are never mean to you, if they never really belittle you or berate you in a way that is, you know, profoundly awful, then you don't know what that feels like. And I think you're actually more likely to do it because you don't understand what it would feel like. So if your kid is miserable and horrible, you might look at your toolkit and say, well, I'm going to go with belittling today. I understand how awful it is. So if I have to yell at my kids, I go in my car and I close the doors and I yell at them in a way that they can't hear. And yet I feel better in the end. So in storytelling, the part of this example that really, I think it speaks to me is the memory, right? You're, you're embedding in somebody's mind and heart, a memory. And, and you're trying to pause that memory for your kids, not to have such a negative impression, but yet in your storytelling, you're, you know, hundred percent authentic and you're, you're giving them a memory, but your audience, you definitely shock them. That, that's one of the parts of your storytelling. You use the term unpredictable, but to me, it's almost an element of surprise. When you bring your audience to that point of shock or surprise, what does that vulnerability mean to you? Because as a storyteller, that's one element you're definitely free, I guess, with. You're free to say, here I am. Here's all, all the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, I think the word free is right, actually. I feel exceptionally free when I express those things that are true about me that I think most people would conceal. You know, the best example of that is I I tell a story about the time I was the stripper in the crew room of a McDonald's restaurant for a bachelorette party. And that was a story I was never going to tell in my life. It was so embarrassing to me that I'd actually done this ridiculous thing at the age of 20, you know stripped for a bachelorette party in front of my co-workers and my wife convinced me to tell it and I was so angry with her the night I was telling it it was at a moth grand slam in front of a thousand people I remember walking up the steps going I can't believe I'm doing this I was sort of trying to find a new story to suddenly tell because I really didn't want to tell that story as soon as I began telling it on stage suddenly every ounce of shame and embarrassment was gone I, I just suddenly felt Like, there's nothing wrong with this, and everyone is laughing and enjoying it. And they're not laughing at me, they're laughing with me. Sure. And that was such a lesson for me. And it's something I always talk to people about. I say, you know, as long as you didn't, like, hurt an animal or hit a woman, you know, as long as you didn't, like, kick a child in the teeth, you can say almost anything, and people will embrace you for it. And so that vulnerability for me is freedom. It's freedom to be able to say whatever I want to be able to tell people what my life is like, what's going on in my head, and the knowledge, most importantly, that people are going to accept it, appreciate it, and oftentimes love it. I know you do not script 100%. I mean, you've done, what, over half a dozen TEDx talks. You never script anything. You've done 
are you up to over how many moth storytelling competitions? I can't keep up. It's a little over a hundred. And you don't script. Yeah, I don't script. It's mind bending. So give give me a little bit of a deeper dive into your mind because you're not. It's not so much that you're organizing. It's the fact that you actually have structure with that organization too. So you you know where you're going. I tell my stories in scenes, which is to say there's always a physical location attached to every scene. So when I'm remembering how my story is going to be told, I rem- I'm remembering place to place to place. You know, I have to go here, then I have to go here, then I have to go here. So those become the scenes of the story. Oddly, there's often seven scenes in most of the stories I tell. I don't know why, but that just seems to be the case. And then in my mind, oftentimes, I imagine those scenes as circles. You know, for me, it's actually a concentric series of circles that work to the middle. It doesn't need to be that way. That's just the way my brain sees them. Kind of like a spiral? Yeah, like a spiral, like a like a shell on a, on a snail. You know, they, they move to the middle. And each one of those circles, the size of the circle is determinant based upon how big the scene is. So if it's a small scene, it's a small circle. And if it's a big scene, it's a big circle. That helps me sort of just remember the nature of that scene. And then weirdly, sometimes those scenes have color. So, you know, if it's a scene like a time in front of a Best Buy when I get in a fight with a guy, that scene, the fight, the I almost punch him, that's a red circle for me. That's a like, oh, here comes the fight. If it's a sad moment, you know, if it's a moment where I suddenly realize I've let someone down, that's a blue scene. That's a blue circle. Sometimes circles don't have any colors, but that's just a weird way that my brain works in terms of remembering where to go. I don't sort of put words into those circles. I just sort of, it's sort of like a, like a lens into the, into that location. If I'm thinking about the scene where I strip in the crew room, you know, if I look at that circle, it's just a, it's just a window into that break room, that what that break room looked like and, you know, the people sitting in there, you know, I remember it. I don't memorize it. So, you know, if you hear me tell the same story twice, you're going to notice that it's going to come out differently. It's going to be the same story and it's going to be in the same order, but sentence choices and word choices are always going to be shifting and altering. That doesn't mean that I don't memorize laugh lines. It doesn't mean that I don't memorize transition sentences or just really great ways to describe something. But the great thing is if I forget all of that, I can still tell my story. You know, I can miss a laugh line. I can even blow a transition and I can still get to the next scene in a slightly clumsy way in my mind. But what I've discovered over the years is nobody really cares. You know, the the perfection that storytellers attempt to achieve, particularly if they're scripting their stories, no one gives a damn about it. You know, there's a storyteller in New York named Danusha. And English is, I think, her third language. I think she speaks Polish, Russian, and then English. Her nouns and verbs don't always agree properly, and I'm sure my vocabulary is far more expansive than hers, and yet she kicks my ass in storytelling competitions, because it doesn't matter the quality of the sentence. It matters the decision-making of the storyteller and and their willingness to share things that are important and authentic and vulnerable. That's really what storytelling is about. So let me take you on a sidestep to something I think you're, let's just say, intrigued with, comedy. Is that a form of writing? I know you've said storytelling is harder than telling somebody a joke, but you seem to be kind of like this closet comedian that you do like writing comedy. Yeah, it's true. I've been doing stand-up or I was doing stand-up before the pandemic. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. And yet it is 
far more terrifying than storytelling will ever be for me. But you do mention that storytelling is more challenging than comedy, but it's terrifying for you. Is it because the audience has to react immediately? Well, the audience has to react in an expected way. So I think storytelling is harder for for me. It's actually harder for most other people because it requires vulnerability. And that is really hard for a lot of people I've discovered over the years. I'm just a person who says everything. And it's just always been the way I am. So, you know, when a woman in a workshop who knows me well once said, I'm the, I'm the bravest person she had ever met, I had to quickly correct her and say, I would agree that other people are brave when they're vulnerable on stage, exceptionally brave, but it doesn't require any courage from me. It's just something I automatically do. When I do comedy, I have to get a laugh. In storytelling, my goal might be to make them cry at the end of the story, but if they don't, they can still enjoy the story. They can still say that was super entertaining. I really enjoyed that. But you can't do that in comedy. In stand-up, people can't go, well, I didn't laugh, but it was entertaining. That's really not a thing. So it's the expected response that you must achieve in order to be successful that makes it terrifying for me, which is why I did it. I, I try to run at the things that I'm the most afraid of. I think that's always a good choice in life, although it's a challenging choice in life. So your storytelling being a time travel experience for people, you you bring up the element of present tense. Uh, that was profound for me uh, that you speak not so much looking backwards, but actually putting people in the moment. Do you have a, a tip on that in regards to language choice or word choice? Well, the good news is nobody really notices if you shift, shift tenses too much. The Moth produces books based upon the stories that are told on stages. And one of the people who were working on that book, they told me one of the things they noticed in transcribing stories really for the first time from the stage to the page was that storytellers are constantly changing tenses. And I'm aware of that too. I hear myself changing tenses sometimes. I think the present tense is a wonderful way to tell a story. I do think for some people, you sort of have to get used to it. You have to practice it so that you automatically fall into present tense. Because I've met many storytellers who say, Matt, I've been telling stories in the past tense for the last 47 years. You now want me to shift to the present tense? I can't do it. And I say, that's fine. Most people expect you to tell a story in the past tense. So if that's what you have to do, please do that. But when you can tell it in the present tense, boy, it does put people in the moment. It makes it almost trick the brain into thinking it's happening right now. And it also affords you the past tense. You know, if you're in the present tense and you want to go into backstory, you can shift to the past tense and it feels much more natural. And then you can come back to the present tense as a signal to the audience that we're not in backstory anymore. We're now we're back in the main story. But if you start in past tense, you can't really shift to present tense. That's an awkward transition that audiences will notice. And it feels a little crafty and silly. It's a way I have always told stories. So for me, it's easy to say you should do it this way because it's something I am just accustomed to. It does take practice. I want to bring up one thing about a takeaway I had from your book, which is that a story is like a coat. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any, do you have any, I guess, thread or buttons that you use intentionally to help the coat be a little heavier? The thing I like to do the best is to end the story before the audience wants me to end the story. I say a story is like a coat because when I tell you a story, I put a coat on you and the harder it is to get that coat off, the better the story. Essentially, are you thinking about me a year later? You know, did I tell you a story about a McDonald's break room? And when you're in McDonald's, suddenly the idea of me stripping in the break room comes to mind. That's a great coat, right? If it stays with you for a year. 
one of the things I really like to do is to just cut my story off a little short so that there's still things to be wondering about when the story's done. I think that increases the coat-like nature of a story. Books, by the way, are the same way. That's where I discovered sort of this trick. When I was writing novels, I always end my novel like 10 pages before the audience really wants me to end. And then what happens is I get like teenage girls in Mexico translating their Spanish to English so they can write to some middle-aged white guy in Connecticut to find out what happened to a fictional character who doesn't really exist because I ended the book a little quicker than they wanted me to. And as soon as I get that, I know, boy, well, there's a bunch of teenage girls in Mexico who are apparently reading my book, probably for school, and now they're being bothered by it. Now they can't get it out of their head. And that feels like an enormous success for me. So I try to do the same thing when I'm telling stories out loud. Let me ask this as we wrap up. Is there something you're looking forward to? Because obviously, I mean, you've checked off a lot of bucket list experiences. I don't think of them that way. You know, I don't think of them as bucket lists because, you know, I have a terrible existential dread. You know, I think about death all the time and terrifies me. So I feel like a bucket list is a dangerous thing for someone like myself to have because every time there was a check, I was getting closer and closer to the end. And when I run out of things in my bucket, so it's why I don't quit anything ever. You know, I'm a wedding DJ for the last 23 years and I haven't, I've done one wedding this year. And my wife says, you know, are you going to wrap this up now? And I say, well, if I quit being a DJ, it means I take one closer step to death. As long as I continue to be a DJ, then I don't take that step. And that's honestly how my brain works, which is stupid, I know, but protective of my psyche. It sounds very similar when you mentioned that about the DJing. You haven't let go of teaching when your wife would say, hey, you could go build maybe a bigger career somewhere. But the reality is the teaching is so fulfilling. Yeah, I just had a business meeting with some people who sort of helped me with my finances and everything. And my wife was in the meeting too. And they were all basically trying to convince me to quit teaching. They said, you're losing money every day you go to school. You should be doing something else. But I love teaching. You're right. And I can't let go of it. You know, I keep a lot of things in my life going at the same time. You know, to answer your original question, I'm working on a one hour and probably it's going to be a 90 minute solo show that I'm pretty excited about that I'd like to roll out. I'm also writing a musical with someone right now that I'm thrilled to be writing. It's this really I don't know, I think it's going to be great. We're writing a musical where I am essentially trying to convince my musical partner. It's a it's a two, two-person musical, and I don't sing, which makes it more challenging. I'm writing a musical where I'm trying to convince her to be vulnerable, which is something really hard for her. And the goal every night would be she would say something that she's never said before at the end of the show. But there's no guarantee that she will, because if I don't convince her over the course of the musical to say the thing that she's never said before, she doesn't have to say it. And so every night will be slightly different. And there's a lot of um, improv involved and we involve the audience and all these things. So I'm pretty excited about that. There's always a lot of stuff going on, but that's good. So are you going to stick with teaching? I, I actually received an email yesterday, which was my business person's, my business people's summary of the meeting. And in the summary of the meeting, it said, Matt agrees to teach for two more years. And I looked at that sentence and I said, that's not what I agreed to. I agreed to reconsider teaching in two years. I just like kids a lot. You know, maybe the pandemic, if it, you know, if it keeps rolling and every day I have to teach in masks for the next five years, maybe that'll do me in eventually. But it didn't do me in last year. I had the best teaching year of my life in the middle of the pandemic. So I can't see why that can't be the case again. So in closing, is, is teaching the elephant for you? Maybe. 
it's the thing that I was successful at first, you know, in terms of being a person who wanted to work with words. Someone says, what do you do for a living? When I play golf, you know, so they, they add someone to our threesome, and I, I by the second hole, they say, what do you do for a living? It's always a very challenging question for me. I always say a teacher, and then my buddy who's playing with me says he also writes books, and then someone else says he also stands on stages, and he consults, and he's a minister, by the way, if you want to get married, stuff like that. Well, I just work with words, whether it's words that I'm speaking or words that I'm writing. I'm just sort of very interested in words and sentences. That is what I do. And the first thing that allowed me to do that was teaching, you know, standing in front of other human beings. All I do is storytell all day to my students. It might be a story about long division, and it might be a story about the Boston Massacre. Essentially, I'm just constantly talking to those kids, and I'm constantly trying to entertain them because they're 10, and they're in school, and I think school should be fun before anything else. And I think one of the ways to make school fun is to be an entertaining human being in front of your audience. And every day I have an audience of 20 to 24 10-year-olds, which is a really difficult audience, perhaps even harder than a stand-up audience. And I have to entertain the hell out of them or they misbehave and don't learn. It's the thing that I adore doing. And now it's not so hard. You know, it's nice to be able to do something really well that you're appreciated for, and yet it doesn't kill you to do it. It's not a heavy lift anymore for me. After 23 years and 18 years in the same classroom, things are not as challenging as they once were for me in teaching. And and that makes it nice too. There's definitely something that they're teaching you in return, it sounds. So, well, I'll leave you with this, Matthew. Did you put that wedding proposal in your homework for life from the airport in Detroit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I That was a that was a huge homework for life day, that Detroit airport, which is to say something, right? You get stuck in an airport for nine hours. And I probably ended up with 10 items in my homework for life from that day. I don't know how many of them are going to be stories, but the wedding proposal one's absolutely going to become a story that I tell on stage. But the other ones are things I'm certainly never going to want to forget. You know, I, I don't want to forget that the Detroit airport has live music all day long, and it's really delightful for about two hours. And then you want to strangle the trumpeteer. You want to put an arrow through the heart of the piano player, because after nine hours, you just you don't want to hear it anymore. You're just tired of it. And that's not going to be a story, but it might be part of the wedding proposal story. Or as I'm talking out loud about it right now, remember the idea of just telling yourself your stories. As I speak it out loud, I realize that's a bit for stand-up. I could absolutely turn that into a 30-second bit about the Detroit airport and probably music in general in terms of how lovely music can be until it becomes something that wants to kill you. Right. It becomes torturing. (laughs) Yeah. But I can already feel the beats of that. I can already feel as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, this could be funny. I just think it's so important when it comes to our homework for life that we don't judge what we're putting on the page or the sheet or whatever you're using to collect these memories. So often I used to judge it and say, well, that's not going to be a story. Why would I write it down? I don't do any of that anymore. Now I say, well, that's a thing that happened to me that impacted me in some tiny or significant way. It doesn't feel like a story. And yet now I can totally see it being part of a story or even a stand-up bit. So I I cast no judgment on anything that happens to me, anything that goes on in my head. I just put it all down and and make something of it later on. Yeah, well, I could talk with you for nine hours, but that won't leave anybody with wanting more maybe. But I'll leave leave it with this. (laughs) Don't grade your homework for life. That's pretty good. You know what? I've never heard it said that way. I believe I will be using that phrase for the rest of my life now. Do not grade your homework for life. I love that. Well, Matthew, thanks for your time today. Again, you continue to inspire me on the story 
telling side, but also just optimism in general. So this has been good. Thank you. I have to say it is a joy to talk to you. Every question you ask me is some interesting combination of something I've never been asked before combined with some element of my past that I have kind of forgotten I even shared with the world and it really makes for a fascinating conversation. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the time together. All right. Anytime. To find out more about Matthew Dix, simply visit matthewdix.com. That's matthewdix.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Communicator's Circle podcast. For more tips and resources on how to communicate with complete clarity and confidence, visit communicatorscircle.com and follow us on Instagram at communicatorscircle. Until next time, remember, each day gives you a chance to discover the story you want to tell. So I encourage you to practice the homework for life by Matthew Dix. Learn more at his website at matthewdix.com. Thanks for listening.